Hi everyone, this is Haley from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. In today's episode of Expert Answers, I talked to Dr. John Cerrito and Candice Rohde Johnson. John is a leading Alzheimer's disease researcher and professor at Washington University of St. Louis who uses in vivo microdialysis to look at levels of interstitial fluid amyloid beta in the rodent brain. As a member of the BASI team, Candace has a great deal of insights with respect to the instrumentation used by Dr. Cerrito, as well as how to improve research results without sacrificing animal welfare. Let's dive in. So John, this is a question for you. Can you perform behavior tasks in the rat turn and which ones? You can. Certainly, you're limited and the animal has to stay in a reasonably confined space. And we've done novel object recognition tasks. Novel object location tasks could probably work as well. You know, beyond that, you know, you certainly can't do water maze and, and experiment and things like that. You'd have to worry about things that are a confined space, but certainly we, we have done that in the past. Yeah. And... Candace, this question is for you. Does the Rattern record its own movement? So the answer is yes. I made the note that the system is not a behavioral collection system. I had explain what I mean by that because we're using terminology that isn't necessarily commonplace, but we are not able to capture every single thing that the animal does. The way that the system works is that the animal has 270 degrees to move where nothing happens. And it's only once the animal reaches past that point that a flag enters a sensor and that triggers the counter rotation of the cage. So, uh, you know, if the animal's sleeping, which is honestly what they do most of the time during the day, then nothing's happening. You're not able to collect it. Likewise, if the animal is moving in that 270 degree area where it's not triggering the sensor, then uh, you're also not capturing it even if the animal is moving. So where it comes in most useful is for applications where you want to understand a baseline change in activity. Right? It is very easy to monitor things like a change from activity levels from day to night. You can see that very clearly uh, with an animal, even when it's acclimating to the system. But also things like I mentioned, where we're able to uh, dose a drug, you know, amphetamine or some something uh, like that. And of course, then watch the resulting increase in activity. Um, so there's a separate module that connects to the system system uh, with some software for the activity collection. And it's essentially just giving you data that you're able to um, break into the time sections that you want so that you can get the resolution that you want for your application. That's excellent. Uh, thanks, Candice. John, this one is for you. Do the, uh, in your experience, do the electronics of the cage create an electrical interference in noise or noise, sorry, in EEG recordings? Generally, no. So for EEG, when you're measuring gross activity, uh, we don't have any kind of interference. When we're doing single EPSPs, occasionally get interference. And we've got another technology that essentially using amperometry to measure oxidation of molecules where we get some interference. And what we've done is wrapped essentially in a self-enclosed Faraday cage uh, when we think we've got this issue, so we just want to be careful and wrap a cage in copper. Um, both the top as well as the bottom and then the sides to then and to shield that electrical noise. But in general, that's not a problem that we have, but there are pretty easy ways to get around that. Um, if you find that, you know, if your room is, has a lot of electrical noise or there's something else going on, um, simply wrapping everything on copper solves the problem. Okay, fantastic. So this question is from Thomas. What habituation time is recommended when using rats? Candace, maybe I'll start with you and then John and your, you can maybe chime in some, some experience. 
Yep. So the answer depends a bit on exactly what you're trying to accomplish. So you saw in some of the data that I showed that when you're looking at something very stress sensitive, like the heart rate and blood pressure measurements, then you're going to have to wait quite a bit longer for the animal to uh, get used to the caging. Remember that that was the same for any home cage. So it wasn't any different on the rat turn. Outside of that, when you're just kind of doing a, yeah, a study where you're not quite as worried about stress parameters. So for a lot of our customers doing pharmacokinetics with this system, they will typically do somewhere between a four hour to 24 hour acclimation period. And so again, it's really, it's dependent on the application area that you're using it in. I would say you should never go, I would never recommend going less than four hours. I would generally prefer that the 24 hours is kind of the baseline just to make sure that the animal goes through a day night cycle and you can make sure everything is uh, yeah, working before you dose them the next day. Yeah. It's for, for us, it depends on what we're doing. If we're just measuring you know, the effect of a drug on a beta levels. Um, some of my people will do surgeries in the morning and in the afternoon set uh, set up the actual microdialysis to let it go overnight. So in that case, there's, you know, four or six hours or so habituation sometimes, maybe even less sometimes. But in, that, in those cases, we're not so much worried about the animal's behavior at all. We're worried about some biochemical change going on in the brain that we're trying to measure. For things where we're doing sleep studies or stress studies, um, we'll have the mice habituate for five to seven days. We know, certainly know one or two days Things are not, and they're not ready for that point. We've never done, we, never, we haven't tested day by day to know whether four days is good enough or not. We know that five to seven days is plenty. But again, that's where we want, behave, where we think the animal behaving is a critical aspect of our experiment, or we think it could affect the biochemical change we have going on in the brain. So again, it all depends on the application and what, and what you think you need to be looking at. Great. This question is coming in from Andy. In general, are you seeing an increased requirement for hands-free data collection and a higher importance on reduced animal handling and intervention? Is this an important factor that might influence data acceptance and success in publication? If you're trying to look at stress and how stress could be, and there's a lot of things in in our science that stress is impacting and certainly handling at, and being near the mouse handling it, injecting it, whatever you're doing is a factor, whether it's you know, for a lot of what we do, we don't minimize the intervention we're doing, we're doing with the animal just because it's difficult for us to do that. And I'm not sure experiments are negatively impacted from that. I'm not sure that it's a crazy, it would be the factor that would de- determine data acceptance or success. Though in, say, if you're studying stress, it, it wouldn't hurt having less, less interaction with the animal. I'm going to weigh in on this one a little bit as well, because obviously John knows a little bit more about the acceptance and success for publications. From my end of things, what I've seen happening over time, and this is related to a lot of things in our um, in our culture and our world, but there's been an increasing growth in animal research to make sure that we are talking about what we do and talking about it in a positive way. And there's a lot more, you know, like just kind of layperson paying attention to what's happening in animal research. And so that's one part of what's driving these changes, but people do seem to be focusing across the board, whether it's at pharma or academia or industry, seem to be focusing more on the impact that humans have on animals in their studies. And so this is something that a lot of behavioral researchers obviously have paid attention to for a very long time, but there is actually a a name for the field of study where you look at how animals are impacted in their research by human research design. I'm gonna say the name really terribly, but it's like therapies, 
symptomology. Please forgive me for that, whoever actually knows how to say it. But yeah, so a whole a whole range of people studying now things like how we do cage changes and how that affects the animal stress and how we hadn't paid attention to that and how it might have an impact on data. So yeah, from the publication perspective, maybe maybe not. I, I don't know if that's come into play too much just yet, but from the like general approach that research is heading and the way that we go out into the world to talk about what we do, it's definitely changing. Okay, great. Thank you both so much for that. A question that we've gotten a few times here is, can you house multiple animals within the system? John, we'll start with you. No. <laughs> yes. No, no it's correct. <laughs> Well, I mean, in order for the mouse to be, if it's tethered to something, if you have two mice moving in opposite directions and you can't keep them both tethered. So um, you can have one mouse tethered and another mouse just walking around normally. And I, I wouldn't see any problem with that. If there's, I guess I can envision it a time you'd want to be able to do that for something, but you can only, I'm, at least we haven't been creative enough to find a way to tether more than one mouse and not make the whole thing um, go haywire. So in general, I would consider it would really one mouse per cage. Yeah. Okay, great. Then maybe Candace, maybe you could tackle this one. How would one uh, utilize this system or this technology at at scale? Is it possible? Yes, it is. Uh, so this, I think, kind of feeds into that previous question about being able to do more, more than one animal. Of course, you guys mm-hmm. uh, would all be looking at this and wondering how you might fit it into your lab space. And like in any lab space is an issue. But that's part of the reason that we have the different configurations of the system, so that whether you're kind of putting it on shelving units or putting it on a benchtop or whether you want us to create some kind of custom uh, shelving system, we're able to help with that. Really, the, the truth is that in terms of like, technicians or students that are interfacing with the system once you're able to set up one once you have your experiment down pat it's typically relatively quick to set up multiple stations most of our customers have somewhere in the neighborhood of eight or more systems in their labs so that they've got enough to run you know reasonable numbers of animals and their studies at each segment and maybe john you want to chime in and if, if you want to and let us know kind of what your lab is set up like and how many you've got. So we generally, and once you're setting up one, it it really is, um, it's not much more effort to set up more than one. We we generally will set up either three or four mice at a time and then do microanalysis. From my own experience, and I think for most of the people that doing more than four at one time is, takes a lot more brain power than than it's worth and is prone, more prone to failure. Um, Doing up to four for for me and for, I think for, for us is, takes about the same amount of effort and success rate. We try not to scale up much more than four at any given time if we can avoid it. But that said, and we've got, I think, 16 rat turns now. So we can set up multiple, you know, on Monday, we'll set up four. On Tuesday, we'll set up another four and do back-to-back experiments that way. But four is our limit um, in brain power. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Great. Okay. Well, I think in the interest of time, we'll take this question as our as our last question and we'll save the rest for our Q&A report, which will be available in um, the next couple of weeks. This one's from Greg. Is there a reasonable way to monitor timing of food intake when the mouse is in the system? John, in your experience? Um, not that I'm, we generally put food in the bottom of the cage. There's, we don't, we don't have, we don't have a good way of doing that. We don't accept yeah, I mean, so. and we could take the food out and we could take the food out and weigh it after, after the, after the, after the fact, but that, 
So a uh, reasonable way, yes. Excellent way, no. So we, I mentioned that we have the metabolic cage so that you're doing urine and feces collection. That type of cage uses a slightly different design uh, than the one that Dr. Cerrito uses in his lab. The kind of the problem here is if you're doing anything with a head mount, you don't want them to have anywhere where they can get that caught. Right. So the cage that is best for measuring food intake is not best for using a head mount animal study. But if that's not what you care about, if the metabolic collection and food intake is what you're paying attention to uh, and you're doing infusion or something like that, then it is relatively easy. The food hopper is on the outside of the cage and uh, the animal has access to it, but it's relatively easy to kind of take it off, uh, put a flat in place so that it's closed while you weigh the food or you can just take it out by hand. So it's not uh, like automated measurement or anything like that, but it is accessible and relatively easy to do when you've got that kind of cage set up. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.